you're listening to a this day original podcast in the process of hearing these stories i felt like my confusions about the country are so trivial i think i have two engineers in the book and like you know they were both sort of wowed by the second five year plan and they became engineers because the country was building great things a train had stopped like which was right behind their house in amritsar and uh, you could hear people shooting at the train from their homes like from their terraces they saw their milkman riding on a cycle with a bloodied sword uh, and uh, in front of him there was a girl whose whole family was massacred 20 minutes prior and he brought her home and she became a sikh and he got married to her uh, so they all believed nehru when he said that partition is not going to happen and then when it seemed inevitable that partition will happen nehru thought that this was going to be a temporary thing rina venugopal's interest in stories of india's independence began with her own family's history she tells me in this conversation we talk about her book independence day a people's history recollections of those who witnessed our birth as a nation who talk of their hopes for india then and now so rina thanks so much for coming into the studio and being part of uh, readers room It's a long way from the editorial offices of Outlook Money, where we first met. In Ashram, yes. <laughs> um, so, Veena, the people you talk to in this uh, book, Independence Day, A People's History, they would be roughly of your father's generation, right? Yeah, they are uh, slightly older than my father. My father was born in 49. and uh, the idea was to get people who remembered being around for independence day so which meant that they were at least 3 or 4 years old uh, in 47 so the people in the book are uh, were born in 42 43 or earlier so there's like a span of age groups in the book i think the oldest person was 16 at the time of independence and the youngest was about 4 Uh, my father was uh, quite upset that he did not make the cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, beginning from the family, and I certainly wasn't born at the time of uh, independence, and yet I feel that uh, my own life has been impacted. I think a lot about independence, and uh, in our case, also about partition. Yeah, and I'm sure that's true of many Indians. So let's start with that. What was your and your family's view of independence, partition, and so on before you started work on the book? So actually, this is really how the book came about, and I didn't end up writing about this in the book because I didn't want it to be a story of you know sort of my family or my personhood. Uh, but I was originally supposed to book, uh, write a book on the Me Too movement in India, and I had signed a book deal with Jagannath, and I tried to start reporting on it, but it was just not going anywhere. It was a lot of he said, she said, because like there are no cases filed, the paperwork is sort of non-existent, etc. So then I met uh, Chiki for lunch one day, and uh, we were talking about, oh, what do we do? And I was like, I don't think this book is working out, and we just sort of got talking, and I was telling her. About about the story of my family and in the independence movement uh which is that uh so my grandfather my father's father was a superintendent of police and um mostly for the tamil nadu police and working in madurai salem in that part and so of course his bosses were the british 
um, and he was fighting the freedom fighters on behalf of the British. Um, and um, so he was posted in Madurai and he would go to that Madurai Minakshi temple on the significant day of the week for the goddess, which let's say is Monday. So every Monday he'd go to the temple. And so the freedom fighters sort of uh, waited for him in his usual route uh, to the temple. And the family lore is that the goddess came to him in his dream and warned him off. So he took, so there are four entrances to the temple, east, west, north and south. So he took a different entrance the following day. But the Monday after, they waited for him on all four uh, routes and they threw acid on him and he was significantly disfigured. Now, at this time, he was actually married to my grandmother's younger sister and they had six children. And my grandmother was a doctor and she did not want to get married because she wanted to pursue her profession. Uh, so um, her younger sister uh, then went to see her husband in the hospital after he was uh, attacked and she came back and she jumped into the well and uh, killed herself uh, which is when then my grandmother was persuaded to marry him because you know there's a large family to look after etc and she did and they had three children the youngest of who is my father so so you know so in our family, like the the story of independence, is always sort of tinged uh, with this one, which is both you know uh, sort of startling and dramatic, um, and quite shocking at the same time. Um, and at the same time, through all of this, my grandmother is like a staunch Gandhian, and uh, so she uh, remembers that when Gandhi came and spoke at her medical college, um, she had like two pairs of uh, or a pair of gold bangles she, that she was wearing that she sort of immediately removed and uh, contributed to the cause. And so when she came home, her mother was livid, like, you know, you can't give away like your gold like this kind of thing. Uh, so these are the stories that I've grown up with. And of course, my grandfather was then sort of given the uh, Rao Bahadur title and all of that. So, um, so the freedom movement has been an intrinsic part of the family lore. And my grandmother lived with us uh, till she passed away. So I grew up listening to all of these stories from her. And um, and I, as a child, you don't really know what is wrong or what is not. Uh, and in in the last few years, I've been talking to my father and he told me very strangely um in, in a sort of because my father is like this very alpha male person uh, but in a moment of sort of some vulnerability he told me uh, for a long time I did not know how to reconcile uh, my love for my father with the fact that he his work demanded that he fight against independence and I said did you ever speak to him about it uh, my grandfather died way before I was born, so I've never met this man. Um, uh, so he said I did ask him a couple of times, and he said that that was my duty, and I had a family to look out, uh, look after. And so you know, you have to keep what your your emotions uh, aside and do your duty, and that is what he sort of uh, that was his explanation for it. So it's always been a fraught topic, you know. I can see that everybody thought about this uh, significantly and especially that generation because they sort of came into the world, into the country at this sort of very critical time. I think their feelings for the nation are far stronger and far sort of uh, uh, personal than than 
mine, for example. Um, so uh, I did not realize that, you know, my father had sort of taken this, he's 73 now, that he has been thinking about it for all his life because he's extremely close to his father. He was extremely close to his father. He idolized him like uh, beyond anything. And yet there was this niggling thing that, oh my God, but my father and my country, and these, this is at odds with each other. But what about your grandmother and uh, her husband? So, um, I wish I had asked her this, uh, but I think there was this sort of sense of uh, you do what you have to do for work, but your feelings uh, about your country are different. And in some of the stories that I spoke, in some of the spe people that I spoke to for the book, too, that, that contrast is very evident. So uh, there is this gentleman uh, who grew up in Mysore, who I write about in the book, and uh, his father was uh, employed in a way, or, or was not employed, but had deep business uh, relations with the palace. Uh, but with his, the Wodeyars, yeah. Yeah, uh, but his mother is like a staunch nationalist. Uh, his mother convinced her older two children to drop out of college in order to uh, sort of fight for the movement. And uh, they uh, so when uh, on the day of independence, it was legal in Mysore to celebrate the day because the uh, kingdom had not uh, uh, sort of joined the union at the time. And so they were all woken up at four in the morning and they did like this discreet, illegal uh, sort of uh, hoisting of the flag and so on and so forth. Uh, and they had that same dichotomy in their own family, but it doesn't seem to be a significant thing in how you relate to one another. So I think uh, because a lot of people work for the government and things like that, uh, that you had to keep these two things separate. And I haven't, I mean, unfortunately, obviously, I asked my grandmother how she reconciled the two. Uh, but when I meet my father later this month, I will ask him actually whether he's had any conversations with his mother about it. Uh, but yeah, so that really is how the book came about. And I was telling this to Chiki and she was like, oh my God, this this is such a great story and I'm sure there'll be a lot more like this. And he was like, why don't we put, start uh, sort of talking to people and putting them together? And I, fin I met Chiki at her home in Jorbag and I went to Khan Market for coffee or to meet a friend and I was like telling her that oh I just met Chiki and we're talking about doing this book and she now lives in Kudekanal she's like oh I have this neighbor who grows roses and if I'm not wrong her grandfather was Sarvapalli Radhakrishnan I was like oh this just seems like you know this book is just meant to happen now because it just fell into place quite quickly after that yeah that was a lovely story as well um, her <laughs> husband retiring and going to yeah. going to grow uh, roses and so on. But um, more on the subject of recruitment, how did you go about recruiting your interviewees? So, uh, so the first few just came from spreading the word, asking people. Um, I think f I spent about four months. Uh, whenever I'd meet someone, the first the person, I, first question I'd ask is, "Which year was your father born, or which year was your <laughs> mother born?" Um, and so that sort of took care of the first five or six interviews um, and then I wanted then I went looking for profiles deliberately so because I wanted it to be like a sort of more inclusive uh, crowd I didn't want everyone to be the same socioeconomic demographic uh, so I went I made sure that you know I spoke to more women I wanted to then find a, 
a Dalit person who could relate the Dalit experience of the time, uh, the Muslim experience of the time. So once I got a critical mass, then I sort of was selective about who I asked and about what specific sort of uh, question I was looking for them to answer. But the initial ones really were about sort of network, network, asking people and uh, and 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 word gets around. Uh, so uh, and I, in a lot of these cases, in fact, a lot of them came back and said, oh, I have this friend who now lives here. Would you like to speak with him? Um, and so on and so forth. It was remarkably easy uh, to find the initial set of people. Uh, what became a little difficult is that um, is that actually because of the age profile of these people, uh, some of my interviewees started dying. So then it became like a, a sense of urgency even with me because A, I was hearing these fantastic stories. I did not anticipate I'd get so much sort of variety and adventure and craziness from all of these people. Uh, but once I did, and then I was like, oh my God, I had to, I have to get this done. Then I was worried that all my interviewees stay healthy. Mm-hmm. So one passed away between the, the writing from of the US. The, yes, yeah. yeah, he passed away between the writing and the publishing of the book. Uh, two more have subsequently died. Oh. Yeah, so... Um, Do you feel there were any significant sort of omissions, people from a particular geography that you would have liked to have who are not there? Geography, no. But like I, um, like I was uh, saying, a lot of people, I mean, after the book, came out, people sort of read the book and would come come write to me saying that, oh, you have to hear this story. Uh, so uh, I feel like I've missed out on some interesting stories because I got to know of them only too late. Um, I'm, I don't know if there were sort of uh, omissions that I'd consider from parts of the country, maybe Orissa. Kashmir? Uh, uh, Kashmir, yeah, true. Because that's a very fraught area, the whole yeah. idea of independence, identity, etc. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, we don't have anyone from Kashmir, no. Yeah. So, coming from this very sort of personal, intensely personal um, understanding of what uh, independence meant, Independence Day, partition, freedom, and all of these get a little entangled with, uh, with each other. So I have two sort of uh, broad areas I want to explore with you. One is um, this journey through these interviews. Um, where did it take you? And where are you now in terms of reflecting on the whole uh, independence experience? Secondly, because you, the title is Independence Day, yeah. but um, obviously it's, you're not just trying to find out what happened on that one day. It's... Yeah. Uh, a little bit before and a lot after. So in terms of the structure of the interviews, um, what were you looking for? Was there a set of questions you asked? In what direction did you propel these interviews? Um, So the idea was to sort of uh, stay uh, chronologically with their lives up until after independence. Um, after that, I sort of let them decide where they wanted to take me, and um, and so it, so post independence or maybe after 1955, um, a lot of what the people told me were about what they started their lives off thinking they would be and the country would become, 
and then where it has come. Um, some are disappointed, uh, some are not. Um, but all of them are extremely hopeful. And so that sort of brings me to your first question, which is, how do I feel about it? And I, fe- I started this book feeling a little ambiguous about the country and my place in it. Um, you know, if you're not a, a, relig- a believer in religion or, um, or an extremely or, or a traditionalist in that sense, I feel like there is very little uh, uh, that I can talk about with people. Uh, in the country, so I was I, I I was feeling ambiguous about my place in the country. Um, you know, a lot of our friends are talking about should we stay on, should we move. Um, my daughter has left, um, so uh, so I too am I was in a place where I'm wondering what is going on, and you know, what do I want to do? Uh, but in talking to all of these people, what I realized is. Um, that they all held out hope and they have all made much larger sacrifices for the country than, you know, even as normal. None of none of these people in the book are sort of hardcore freedom fighters. Some come from families which have been a little more involved than others, but nobody comes from sort of a political family or, you know, where they have sort of laid down their lives for the country. But still, even for ordinary people like that, the sacrifices that they've made for the country is immense. And therefore, in the process of hearing these stories, I felt like my confusions about the country are so trivial and that, you know, and that sort of thinking of getting out as the easy answer is not quite the solution that one should look for. But I could counter that by saying that the options to move out of the country were much more restricted then than they are now. Yeah. So uh, even but, if you felt uneasy, there wasn't much of an option, right? Yeah, but for people in, in but, but, but for some of my interviewees, the option to move was available and they chose not to. And especially uh, those, I mean, uh, I think I have two engineers in the book and uh, like, you know, they were both sort of wowed by the second five-year plan and they became engineers because the country was building great things. It's like, uh, so the dams were the temples and so they were sort of totally dazzled by Nehru's vision for the country, especially from the second five-year plan that uh, going abroad was not an option that they entertained as, at, at all. Uh, so even for those who had the choice, um, a lot of them ended up making the choice to stay. And they don't regret it either. Uh, So even if they're unhappy with, say, the current circumstances in the country, they don't regret having made that choice. Uh, That many years ago, uh, one person said that maybe I would have made a little bit more money if I'd uh, moved to the U.S., but I'm happy here. My life here is good. And the gentleman who passed away in the U.S. recently, he Hmm. did talk about how life there is great, but life here is okay. okay as well. On this issue of hope, I also read a lot of despondence yeah. in in the interviews. You know, of course, the two can can coexist. Yeah. So you can be hopeful while being despondent. And I sort of try to do a kind of tally okay. of, <laughs> of how many people are feeling positive about the situation today and how many are not. And then a few people who are kind of ambivalent. Yeah. And actually, those who are unhappy with the situation today, Mm. I I want to repeat that that doesn't mean that they have hope, vastly outnumber those who are either ambivalent or positive. Yeah. Um, 
So I have 10 on my list. Hmm. Where they're very strong, you know, negative kind of uh, hmm. feelings about what's going to happen. Hmm. A couple who are ambivalent, three actually, and only one who's really, really positive, hmm. which is one Mr. Ganpathayar, hmm. who says he was very angry about minority appeasement. Hmm. And mm. the censorship of the media, yeah. which I found really strange, yeah. you know, because <laughs> because people like you and me really believe that it's the independent, uh, liberal, secular media that's being mm -hmm. uh, threatened out of uh, existence. So um, go back to that kind of balance. But when somebody says something like that, which is so patently at odds with the way you perceive the situation mm -hmm. and how do you react as an interviewer in this case it was easy because i sort of thought of myself as a scribe and uh therefore i did not want to engage in 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 a debate with them i did not want to correct their misapprehensions you know i wanted to only to record them um so so it wasn't difficult to do uh, but I do want to point out one thing, which is that even in the 10 who are not happy, they are unhappy about specific issues. And for and I think it is interesting that for most of them, or actually for all of them, the only issue that that they really sort of worry about is the communal issue. Um, and for everything else, you know, uh, even say uh, Sarvapali Radhakrishnan's granddaughter, uh, Girija, Girija mm -hmm. yeah. So she was like, um, you know, the country is going in the right way, and uh, we are a very old country. What seventy years in the in the arc of long arc of history, and so on and so forth. But yes, uh, the polarization and the communal sort of. Uh, disharmony is an overwhelming sort of sadness for most of these people. And I think it also comes from the fact that they they thought once independence was achieved that mm. we would leave that behind. Um, the horrific partition riots they thought was the end of it. But what has happened is that it has lingered on, right? And that is what I think uh, most people are upset by. On every other front, people are okay. They're like, oh, we could have done a lot more. But, uh, you know, it's fine. But even one of these uh, engineers that you talk about, mm -hmm. going beyond communalism, yeah. says um, what you said, 1947 to 22 is not a long time in the life of a country that has never known how to live on its own. We should be happy about some things. But unfortunately, our present-day rulers have become like kings. Mm. That goes a long way beyond communism. And it's a pretty strong statement. Yeah, um, but I don't... I mean, he means that, that sort of the... He means political class as a whole and not present day as in present sure, day. Sure. So I think that, the, the, that sort of complaint is that we did not... Uh, we did not accomplish everything that we had the potential for because the political class was busy enriching themselves. And that is where he was coming from. So in terms of development, I think there is some concern that we could have done a lot more. 
but we've been sort of um, brought down by uh, by the fact that uh, a lot of times our politicians don't have a co- accountability and in terms of the population it is that there is still communal tension mm-hmm. and that it has actually become worse um even the the mysore person as narendra uh, who worked in the government for many years he was the media advisor to many prime ministers uh, he uh, he's the one whose uh, brother and sister like i said dropped out of college and he says that actually by the 60s itself we were disappointed with the way the country was going and they did not feel that the sacrifices they made for the country were worth it because it you know uh people who fought for independence were sidelined by people who muscled their way into the political argument in fact uh, i noted a quote from him which goes economic reforms are not to benefit the public or the larger good it's only about how much money individuals can make yeah the entire political establishment is engaged in economic reforms to benefit themselves. Yeah, exactly. So this is a refrain you pick up yeah. again and uh, again. And um so you know, I don't want to push that point, but it was pretty um it was pretty saddening for me. Yeah. You know. Um in the current circumstance to talk about communal divide and so on, that's an obvious thing, but I picked this up time and time again yeah. because um I too had seen this idealism. And yes. my case, I interacted directly with my grandfather who um uh, again was in this kind of tenuous situation where he was an employee of the British government but luckily not in a position of power. He was a lecturer. Okay. And uh, there are stories which were kept hush-hush about him having to go underground. Uh and there's a lovely there's a lovely story over here about but he's in the bathroom yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah so he actually had to take a train and go somewhere because he okay. was up to some uh mischief in the chemistry lab <laughs> uh living in punjab where there was a lot of yeah, yeah. a lot of hanky panky going on and my father was an idealist mm. you know which year was your father born he was he was born well before he was born in 22 okay mm. but um so but he moved to of all places chennai all the way from oh. faisalabad to chennai in 1945 i see so he saw the actual partition from a great distance mm. but also with a lot of trauma because his father who as i said was an idealist decided that lalpur mm. now called faisalabad is mm. my home mm. i've dedicated my life to teaching here to setting up social organizations and All this political nonsense of drawing lines and dividing the country is not going to work and this is where I am. Okay. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. And yeah. the day came where the superintendent of police said, "I can't guarantee your physical safety anymore." And so, with the border drawn in blood, they had to make their way across. Yeah. And um so my father was not a Gandhian, but um he was very very upright man. and to see the deterioration in the moral fiber of a country was very tough for him very very tough for him and then i as a businessman had to deal with a lot of this mm. you know mm. and uh, if you want to survive you have to often pay yeah uh, facilitation fees but i think that's a 
That's a very polite word. Hmm. It's arm twisting. You can't survive in certain situations. Extortion. It's extortion. And uh, he had to make his peace with that because I never hid it uh, from him. So, uh, and then you see the immense wealth that the political class amasses. So I think among that generation, that despondency is very, 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 very large. True. But um, there are two other threads that I want to um, pick up. And um, you can do it any which way you like. One is perhaps by telling a story or not. One is about um, something which a lot of people from that generation talked about, which is um, syncretism, uh, about coexisting, etc., etc., and um, in your book, there were only a couple of examples of it, but those who did feel it felt it very, very deeply. What did you pick up as you went around interviewing people? Uh, no, sorry, a couple the of communal, examples of com communal of harmony, the blending of um, uh, the religious cultures, and so on. Uh, no, I mean, um, I think. Um, I think it was just so well blend that people didn't remark upon it most of the time. Uh, so, for example, um, the the gentleman uh, from that um, uh, who uh, who has the partition story, who moved from very rural uh, 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 part of um, not Faisalabad, Virdi, Virdi, yeah, uh, the brigadier, yeah, the mm. brigadier to India. Uh, his, he went to a DAV school, he told me, and uh, where every uh, week they would have the, say the, every day they would say the Gayatri Mantra. And um, it was printed in a book and it was written in Urdu. Absolutely. Uh, so, and nobody remarked upon it because it was just like the normal thing. Most people knew the, the Urdu script better than the Hindi script, so it was written in Urdu. No, no, so, it wasn't a question of better. In Punjab, the first script that you learned was Urdu. Urdu. Hmm. And uh, the second script that my father learned was Gurmukhi. Right. He never learned the Devanagari script. Right. The third script that he learned English. was English. Hmm. So the, the Devanagari script didn't exist in, in, the in, Punjab in that of, part of, yeah, of his time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so... Um, so most people sort of took it for granted that especially, you know, in uh, in the families that they grew up in, which were all educated families to some degree across the board. Uh, so um, so they lived in that sense of, you know, we, we are different, but we are equal. And some of it was also true for the British. So I have this gentleman who grew up in Champaran in Bihar. Uh, and his neighbors were uh, British families who worked in the uh, armament factory and uh, so on. And uh, so he was like, even though, you know, we were fighting them, we didn't think of them as enemies. So this was in Munger, actually. In Munger, sorry. Yeah. He moved to Champaran later. Um, and the gun factory and the tobacco factory. That's right. Correct. Uh, so he, uh, so I think that there, there is this great that we as a country had this great ability uh, to see to the individual past 
what made us different. I think which is what we have rapidly lost. Now we are so caught up in the labels that we don't look past it to the individual. And so for these people, this was not a big deal at all. Um, not And people who came, fr- uh, all the partition stories, in fact, they, they all say like, you know, um, both sides uh, committed unspeakable acts. So there wasn't, there isn't so much of the vilification of the other. There is an understanding that circumstances and whatever had led to this unfortunate event. In uh, fact, in her book, uh, Anshal, who talks about, yeah, Anshal Mothra, who talks yeah. about uh, partition yeah. as opposed to independence, she makes a statement which is that um, those who knew the other side cannot have hatred uh, for it. Yeah. And um, again, there's a story from my family. Hmm. One of my aunts was sent across the border. Her father was uh, on the other side. But because they knew trouble was coming, they came over. Okay. The kids were sent over. And uh, she was living in Jalandhar in her uncle's house. She was on the first floor. He was a merchant. Shop was on the ground floor. She was four or five at the time. And... Uh, she suddenly saw a young woman, clearly pregnant, running around the corner into the chalk, chased by two men, one of whom was Sikh, with a sword. And she saw that young woman being dismembered in front of her. Mm. My aunt passed away a few years ago, but um, uh, she one day told me, and I'd never heard this story before, she one day told me that she wakes up four to five nights a week, 70 years later, with that same scene. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I can imagine that seeing something like that would never leave you. So I have a story about this gentleman who also moved to the country, to India, a year before because his father got transferred. And they lived in Rouse Avenue. And he says that one day, and he has this like very four, five-year-old energy, you know, of all of these unsupervised children, <laughs> I'm guessing at that time, who ran around everywhere. And so he saw like five people were chasing this man. And so he also ran uh, with them to see what was going on. And he hid... Uh, in a koti in Bengali market and then like you know more people came they smoked him out of it there and they beat him to death in front of him and he's like I can still I still remember that and even uh, in Virdi's story he says how after he had moved to after they had finally had their like long 20 odd day journey and in in this side of the border he saw uh, the columns of people going to Pakistan and um, every time uh, they would stop, they would be shot. And uh, a train had stopped, like which was right behind their house in Amritsar. And uh, you could hear people shooting at the train from their homes, like from their terraces. 20 minutes later, they saw their milkman riding on a cycle with a bloodied sword. Uh, and uh, in front of him, he there was a girl who had, whose whole family was massacred 20 minutes prior in front of her eyes. And he brought her home and she became a Sikh and he got married to her. And he ended this long saga saying, what more can I say? And so, yeah, I mean, they're they're horrible, gruesome stories, which is actually also one of the dichotomy that I faced is that um, in the contradiction in what 
we are just talking about ourselves saying that you know these people did not see uh the difference in religion they they lived in a more syncretic culture but yet these were the people who i mean the people who were doing the killing and looting were also amongst them right so uh, so where does that line where does that line lie and uh, obviously people who have done these things are not going to own up to it but they were actually done by actual human beings who also have descendants some of who are probably also still alive uh, so we don't know i think um uh, no, it's not to find fault i think that would be absolutely the wrong uh, way to go but um uh, that's why i look that's why i look at syncretism and uh, what the future of it is and before we talk of that um, there's this lovely story that said nakvi brings in hmm. the book which i who is a riot oh i'm God. sure he I had was. so much fun talking to him <laughs> i'm sure he was um but um, this 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 point that he makes that the prophet's daughter tells hmm. the parrot hmm. in the story yeah to go hunt for ali sahib yeah. ali sahib being the cousin of the uh, prophet and the fourth caliph yeah If you can't find him anywhere, go you Brindavan. must go to Brindavan. Yeah, that was just incredible. Yeah, this is one of the many things that he told me about how much sort of, uh, how much, especially in Lucknow, and I think in the tradition and the culture and history there, and in in the stories there, how much of it is intertwined, you know, uh, between uh, what what Muslims believe and what what Hindus believe, and a lot of the lore is sort of borrowed uh, from each other. And I think he also says about his mother's favorite hymn, when a child is born. I'm not sure whether I wrote it eventually, but he told me like a great line. Um, Hopefully, I'll remember before okay. we end it. But um, you know, one of the points that you make in the introduction, and it comes up again and again. Yeah, uh, sorry, this is the line. If I may interrupt please. you, it says, "Allah mia hamre bhaya kar dio nandlal." Yeah. Yeah. Give my brother a son like Lord Krishna. So he says. So he says that is his um, mother's, his grandmother's favorite sohar. So uh, it's unbelievable, right? I mean, not just that. I mean, it's not unbelievable. F- it's sad that we've lost it, actually. But we haven't actually. Also, we we uh, haven't because if you look at uh, if you look at the Manganiyars and the Lamas yeah, yeah, from uh, yeah, yeah. Rajasthan, traditionally they sang at every important function, yeah. and uh, most of their judgments, the clients, were Hindu. and the songs that they sing are very much steeped in the hindu tradition right. that hasn't stopped you know they still sing the same songs yeah. and uh, um but what i was going to talk about a yeah. little bit is um that as you say the love for gandhi and nehru yeah was something that shone through virtually every interview um that you uh, had and there was one which says that we were starstruck yeah by by Gandhi and Nehru yeah and in that respect the one the riotous exception to that was Said who said quote Pandiji turned out to be a virtuous young man <laughs> playing the, the piano pin. in a brothel yeah. without knowing what was going on upstairs yeah. it's very colorful but what was he referring to no so he was referring to uh, Nehru's uh, stand on partition uh so uh, 
Saeed Saab's family is very close to uh, the Nehru family. I mean, um, his brother was a politician who was Nehru's contemporary in terms of uh, age, etc. Uh, his father was very well known. Uh, Mot- Motilal Nehru and his father knew each other very well. And so what he was saying is that th- so throughout this 1946-1947, when the question of partition uh, began to be sort of uh, more and more um, loud, and the demand for a different country became more and more loud. That is, um, Nehru kept hoping, and Nehru kept telling the Nakwi family that it will not happen. Um, and he was certain that even if it did happen, it would be a temporary measure, and there would be a reunification soon after the British left. Um, so um, a lot of his family members, Said Saab's family members, uh, made the decision of staying in uh, India or going to Pakistan based on this fact that it's temporary or A, thinking that it's never going to happen and B, when it looked like it might just happen, they thought it was temporary. So he had an uncle in Bombay uh, who literally took a tape measure and measured the distance between Bombay and Allahabad. No, Mustafabad, which um, is yeah, a family Correct. Yeah. And, uh, and Karachi, and he said it's roughly the same distance. So why, why? So we'll go to Karachi because the commanding <laughs> officer is well known to me. And so they made these, and two of his sisters got married into families who were in Pakistan because Syed... Uh, grooms were harder to find and and so on and so forth so he so the point he was trying to make is that uh, so they all believed Nehru when he said that partition is not going to happen and then when it seemed inevitable that partition will happen Nehru thought that this was going to be a temporary thing so he felt that Nehru in his own sort of you know half westernized uh, sort of uh, fully liberty. fully pro- progressive liberty did not understand the communal situation uh, and did not un- realize how grave it was. So that is a miscalculation that he's talking about, that Nehru was sort of, you know, uh, playing the <laughs> piano <laughs> while... Uh, while uh, There's all kinds of, of hell happening upstairs. Yeah, while yeah. grave things are going on upstairs. So that's yeah. the context in which mm. he was saying. This is actually reminds me of a conversation I had a few weeks ago with uh, Tripodaman on his book, uh, Nehru, The Debates right. That Shaped India. And you see the same thing there. You see this conversation between Jinnah and Nehru and them sort of talking past each other. And uh, again, the question I asked was, he really comes, in some ways, comes across as being quite naive yeah. in his uh, in his optimism. Yeah. And um, I think there's a danger always there for optimists that uh, that they can actually turn out in retrospect to have been a little naive. Yeah, or foolish. Yeah, I think optimism requires a degree of foolishness and so it is it is inherent in that characteristic to be a little foolish because I think that um, if you uh, consider if you're a considered person you're likely to be more cynical uh, and so a pessimistic but to be an optimist uh, I think you have to be a little bit foolish. Mm. So where are you today? Cynical, optimistic? I think um, I've been cynical for a long time, and but I do feel like I 
have turned a corner. I mean, I don't want to sort of make it so dramatic that I've written this book and turned a corner, but I do, I have made the decision, for example, to not consider moving out. Uh, so now I'm thinking if I'm staying, what do I need to uh, make this place stable? And um, you cannot really make grand big changes. So can you change the small sort of small thing, that small area that surrounds you. And so that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm I'm trying to sort of uh, surround myself with less cynical people. I'm trying to sort of see uh, some, you know, hope and brightness so what are those, and sunshine. What are those sparks or rays of hope that you see? So I think it's children, really, I think. So my daughter's generation gets a lot of rap for being woke. But I think there is a lot to be sort of said for that that kind of idealism. That generation will change things. They're not burdened by tradition. Uh, they have seen a couple of generations of disruptors in other areas making it work. And so I think that gives me a great deal of hope. And in in and in and you know uh, in in a couple of years, I hope to sort of at least volunteer a significant part of my time teaching English to underprivileged kids. So I think I feel like there are small things that you can do, and there are really only small things that you can do. I worried a little bit earlier about legacy and things like that, and I guess like if Gandhi's legacy uh, did not last uh, untarnished for <laughs> seventy five years, what hope is there for the rest of us? So I start worrying about like the long picture, and I'm and I and it makes me hopeful when I look at the sort of uh, uh, look at it as a small, actionable things that I can do. Um, so yeah, I'm still a cynic, but I am I am hoping to be a recovering cynic. <laughs> oh, wonderful! <laughs> That's a lovely, lovely uh, place to. Uh, be in and uh, in a sense to end this episode. Where are you? I would like to know. Yeah. Uh, so I'm completely uh, schizoid hmm. um, because um, I've spent a little longer in this country than you have yep. just by virtue of my age and um, I've seen a huge um, um, deterioration in um, the political climate. Uh, one of the things that worries me hugely, uh, two of the things, firstly is the nature of language. Mm. It has become crude beyond belief. And I asked an interlocutor the other day, is this just an aesthetic reaction? And he said, no, it isn't. Because politics and democracy require people to talk to each other. Yeah. And if you talk to each other, it's got to be with respect. It can't be on the back of uh, insults and ad hominem arguments and so on and so forth. So that worries me hugely. The second is that staying with democracy, we are a parliamentary democracy. Parliament is supposed to be the place where the ideas get debated and they're not debated any longer. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the current dispensation. That began happening once you scrap, once you enforce the anti-defection bill. Mm -hmm. And there's no point having a debate because Decisions are taken by the party chief, so this yeah. guy. So these things worry me hugely. When you talk about young people, they fill me with huge optimism. And um, I have two sort of spheres of engagement with young people largely. 
One is that I occasionally um, take workshops on economic policy mm. with young people, typically undergrads. And um, their understanding about economic economics and uh, policy and so on is um, more than I had until about 20 years ago. Okay. That's despite the fact that I did a master's in economics from a supposedly good institution, but no question. You know, the questions that they ask, the reading that they've done, their awareness is quite staggering. Second, even more significantly, is the work I do with young entrepreneurs. Mm. So I back startups. And over the last uh, seven years, I've invested in over 50 startups. And uh, this is phenomenal. Because firstly, it means that the funding in the economic environment has changed to a situation where young people without family money can actually dream of setting up businesses. Yeah. And secondly, the kind of passion that they bring to bear. So these things make me hopeful. Yeah. But without the larger structure falling into place, this may all come to naught. Yeah. But there's no question of my leaving the country. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is where I am. This is where my roots are. This is where I belong. And um, irrespective of what happens, you know, this is where I'm going to be. And it's, uh, I don't know how much more karma I have left mm. in terms of being able to do. But if there's a karma bhumi, it is this. So, True. And you have to be. If you want to do, you have to be positive. Yeah, that's the only way to survive it. I mean, that, that that's the whole point. I mean, uh, you're not useful being cynical, I feel, or I, I tell myself that. And so, you know, uh, I, I try to sort of be less cynical by being more useful. Right. But I totally agree with you. I mean, if you are sort of keyed into the political discourse, it's so easy to give up hope because there are <laughs> there is very little uh, in terms of um, bright rays of sunshine. What are you reading now, Veena? So I'm reading a lot of fiction th uh, this year. I don't know uh, why. I think I just go through these phases. Um, uh, so uh, right now I'm rereading um, less Andrew Greer's Pulitzer winning uh, novel from a couple of years ago, which is like a f great romp. Uh, but the book that uh, I read just before this, which I was delighted by, and it, it was just a random recommendation from someone, um, is a is a, a piece of fiction set in Kerala called uh, Teen Couple Have Fun Outdoors. And it's a great book. It sort of, um, in fact, talks about the dissonance in, this, in, in the two generations. So it's about um, this uh, guy and his girlfriend who are uh, caught on video, uh, you know, sort of making out. And it is um, set uh, from the, the narrator is the brother of the boy. And he basically accounts for the crazy reaction that his parents have to it as opposed to what his brother and, and, and his girlfriend do. And it's a fantastic book. And uh, if you understand Kerala, you get it really because he gets the nuances so well. But it's a great book even if you're not from the state. So highly it's recommend that. Going up on my reading list. <laughs> Thanks so much, Vita, for being here. Thank and, you so uh, much. This was lovely. All the very best. Thank you. For more such podcasts, articles, trivia, and interesting bits of information from the world of history, heritage, arts, and culture, make sure to visit thisday.app. 
You can also check out the This Day app on Google Play Store and iOS App Store.